Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Construction Podcast. I'm your host, Michael. And today we have a slightly different type of episode. We're still going to touch on the leadership topic, but today we're going to talk more about sort of dyslexia. Um, it's another sort of passion of mine because uh, I, I myself am dyslexic. Um, and to um, sort of join me today in the discussions around topic is uh, uh, a sort of good friend of mine, a guy called Lawrence Chung. So Lawrence, how's it going? Oh, yeah, you're very good. How are you? Yes, I'm great. So I want to thank you for joining me today um, because uh, I know that you're sort of a big advocate in sort of your area uh, of construction for, for people with dyslexia. Um, and it's really sort of important to me that um, we help encourage um, sort of younger people into the construction industry, but also acknowledge that people with dyslexia have some great skill sets that is so applicable to the construction industry that I think is almost sort of site overlooked a lot of the time. Um, and there's a lot of negative press around dyslexia, around sort of the weaknesses that come with dyslexia. And there's never any talk, certainly when I was growing up, about the strengths that we have. So I thought this would be a really great opportunity for you and I to sort of have a chat and share our insights about dyslexia are you know how has it helped within our career um and hopefully try and give other people out there some advice around uh, dyslexia either for the child or for people just getting into the construction industry or even just into the workplace who have dyslexia so i want to start off by sort of just asking you about how you got into construction and, and sort of what led you to uh, where you are today i should probably start off by sort of saying that you're a senior sponsor at network rail is that correct yeah. That's right, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I'll hand it over to you then to give us a bit of a background. So, I mean, I had your, I had your typical upbringing, dare I say, you know, in Lincolnshire where I grew up, where we started at 11 plus. So um, I was, I'll probably say politely, drilled from a very early age, you know, to be very academically driven um, by my parents who were immigrants from Hong Kong. So, so yeah, I you know we had I don't know if you remember, but we used to have um, um, I think it was exams back in those days. I think we had the, we had eleven plus, which was the first exam, and then I think it was year nine Sats. I think it might have been, and then GCSEs and A levels. So back to eleven plus. So yeah, I, you know I was drawn from early age to, to, to get to the grammar school in the town. So I passed eleven plus, went to grammar school. And then, you know, as we approached, or as I approached um, A-levels, you know, it was, I started having those conversations with my parents, and you probably did the same at school as well with the careers advisor about what you were going to do at university, you know, because at grammar school, you were, traditionally, you went to, you did GCSEs, you went to A-levels, you went to university. You know, we didn't really know of any other um, avenues for learning, for, you know, development. It was just, the, it was a traditional method there, I'd call it. So, you know, I had a, a choice, you know, what did I do? I did, I, at A-level, I think I did maths, physics, chemistry, and then the outlier, which was sociology. <laughs> um, there I say it. Uh, because that gave me the, the wider pick of subjects to do university. And yeah. then as I was growing up, I, um, I loved the practical stuff, I loved building stuff, the touching stuff. You know, typical 
typical, dare I say it, boy growing up, you know, I was given Lego and stuff like that, you know, yeah. I was love building stuff and it just lends oh, itself. That sort of thing. Yeah, just lends itself towards towards building. And then you look around and you think, oh, what can I do? And then one of my neighbours um, was an engineer, not a civil engineer, what I ended up doing, um, but a chemical engineer. And, and he was like, you know, engineering is somewhere you should probably look towards. So I was like, oh, you know, engineering, and start looking into it. And at school, I had a really, really, really um, good physics teacher. He won't remember. He won't remember me, but I remember him. And he was someone that came from industry, from what I remember, to teaching. And you can tell those sort of people that come from industry to teaching, and they have such a a different way of of teaching things. It was incredible. It was incredible. Anyway, it ended up. Um, studying um, civil engineering at Loughborough University where I discovered sports more than engineering <laughs> but obviously as you all know with engineering it's a it's a proper proper intensive degree um, nine to five Monday to Friday apart from Wednesday afternoons obviously which was sports um, for three I did I did three years um, at the end of my first year I applied to some um, some local engineering firms. Uh, I managed to get a summer placement at well, the one that I, I met you at in yeah. Newark. Yeah. Screen it was called. Yeah. I think it's been taken over now, obviously. Mm. By RPS, a far larger company. Yeah. Uh, but yes, um, I did that. Um, I was really lucky that they offered me a um, a full time job after after university, and they also offered some money towards university as well which is brilliant so I didn't I didn't do the industry which is a lot of what a lot of engineering students do these days yeah and um, I graduated and I graduated straight into the recession 2007 2008 it was yeah I was lucky enough to have a job and I was really grateful for that and that's when you joined RPS or that's when I joined RPS yeah that's exactly yeah. the same time I joined actually yeah but I didn't come from graduate I came from apprentice route so I was straight out of like secondary school so we joined at the same time yeah, yeah. So, so you went the apprenticeship route. Yeah, yeah. What did you did you join at the end of year eleven? Is that no? So it's after A levels. So I oh, okay. joined at um, I think it was seventeen. It was such a long time ago. It was two thousand seven. I'm going to go with seventeen, eighteen years old. So then you then you started an apprentice. So you started was a drafts person. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I've been, I've been working, I've been working in it now for 14 years. <laughs> Same as you, but straight, straight out of school. <laughs> and that's the thing. I don't really, I don't know anything else but engineering. Obviously mm. I did the odd jobs, obviously when I was growing up, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the family had a Chinese take, a Chinese restaurant, which helped out. But, you know, in terms of my formal career, I've only ever known construction and engineering. Mm. Mm. Um, what was it attracted you about the uh, civil engineering degree? I would say Loughborough and engineering. One was it was a really practical course. Mm-hmm. It was really diverse in its um, curriculum modulus, I think it's called. Yeah. You know, you had, it wasn't just structural mechanics, one, two, three, four. You know, maths one, two, three, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was loads of stuff. There was surveying. 
Yeah. There was stuff in the lab. There was construction management. I think we shared our cohort, our our school, with the construction managers, you know, yeah. who are traditionally, we'll call it, the ones actually on site. Mm. So you had a really good interaction with those. You know, we would... It was just a more well-rounded mm. engineering degree than probably that was some of those offered at different schools, different universities, mm. which were very, very academic-driven, very, very... Um, well, as you well know, when you do a degree, um, you can really tell where those sort of people are going to end up. And a lot of my um, fellow uh, cohort um, from Loughborough University actually went to the contractors. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think there were that many went to consultancy, which is obviously where I met you in engineering yeah. consultancy. So yeah, it was a, it was really the the, the well, the more well-rounded. Um, degree that yeah. offered and also actually it, it gave us it gave you the choice between the three year or four year or five year and i wanted that choice as well mm -hmm. so once you got into uh, industry then at rps the screen where did it go from there so being open and i hope and, and i hope some people from rps have listened to this <laughs> i wasn't the most technical of engineers you know i had my strengths and my weaknesses and technical engineering is probably not one of my one of my strengths. Um, I was never someone you could just put into a corner, go and design this, and I go away and do it. You know, yeah. Was which, never one of my strong points. Which team were you put into? Um, was it primarily structural engineering that you were doing buildings, or was it all the sort of pavements and drainage and things like that? Called with civil engineering. It was a train care facilities team. Mm. So it was uh, railway, so it was depots, there was a handful of stations, it was stuff like that. Uh, and luckily, um, my mentor, I, I call him a mentor, but you know, my first line, very, very first line manager, he also um, was, I think he did some, I think what's traditional is a client rep role for, um, for Ikea, I think it was, if I can say Ikea. And so we used to carry out that function as well, looking at people's works, you know, the contractors' works to make sure it was delivered uh, to spec, to time, to quality, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the stuff I really enjoyed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going out to site and seeing stuff and, and, and seeing how stuff is made, et cetera, et cetera. That was stuff I really enjoyed. So, yeah, um, I had a really good experience in the first couple of years I had there. You know, I really knew what I was what I wanted to do, what I enjoyed, what I was good at, what I wasn't good at. Mm. Uh, and actually it was, it was my, as line manager, it was my mentor that actually told me, you know, I don't, he, even he said himself, technical engineering is, is, is not where you're going to end up. It's not where you'll be. Mm. I see you more as going to the projects part of the, of the construction industry, mm. which was completely new to me. I didn't know anything about that. Mm -hmm. So listen to that advice. Um, I did, two years and I thought, you know what? Um, I think I want to do some further learning. I think I want to do a master's. And so I started looking at master's that were of a slightly non-technical um, background. Uh, and I ended up studying at University of Manchester, um, management of projects. One, because it was an accredited, I think it's JBM um, course that allowed me to get chartered in, uh, as a child engineer 
and two, it was a new city, et cetera, et cetera. I think fantastic things to learn. Uh, and three, it was a really, 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 um, again, I looked at the course modulus and I was like, you know what, these are things that I don't know anything about. Amazing. I'm going to go there and learn about that. So that's what I ended up doing. I did a, a year in Manchester, the uh, management projects, you know, again, meeting new people. It's fantastic. Amazing. Best experience of my life. I, I now live in Manchester. You know, I, st I stayed here. So yeah, that was a great experience. Um, learning about the project side of stuff. So it was half, um, I call it um, the technical stuff of project management, you know, your Gantt charts. Yeah. Um, contract administration, uh, financial, uh, project finance, that sort of stuff. But also a lot of the course, half the course was dedicated towards the soft part of, of, of projects. Yeah. What I now see is the, the strengths that dyslexia can give. Mm -hmm. So there's all the stuff around leadership, around motivation, around negotiation, about people and organizations, about conflict management, mm -hmm. you know, all that sort of stuff that I never knew any about that sort of stuff. And that was the really interested me. It was weird. It really interested me. It was like, because <laughs> I'd already studied, uh, sorry, because I already, we'll call it practiced for two years within industry. When it came to learning all that theory, you could directly apply it. It was incredible. It's probably the mm. same as you, you know, in your, in your um, distance learning or learning on the job. Mm. I think it's an accelerator of learning because you can, I felt that you, you can actually directly apply what you were learning yeah. to that. I couldn't agree more. I don't want to deviate too much, but just to sort of pick up on that. Um, I was horrendous at school from day one. So when I started the school education system at age four, right up until when I left and joined RPS at age 17. Um, it was horrendous. It was a horrendous time for me. The minute I started RPS um, and the company is kind of, um, you know, not really a catalyst to this, but the, a company that would support you through doing day release uh, education. Um, and then that, as you say, that education was directly relatable to the work I was doing on the day job every single day. So there was that connect. I could almost see, relate what I was learning in the classroom to what I was doing as a, as a day job. So when we started mm -hmm. getting sieves out and started to look at soils and different aggregate sizes, and we'll start and apply that to the soils and the uh, pavement that we we're building, you know, whatever airport we we're working at the time. So I, I, could, I could make that connection then. Um, I was just hopeless in a classroom where there was just read learn by textbook type stuff which is what i was i was taught from four to 17 you know so so yeah exactly as you say that's when i started to really my education started to really go places i couldn't i didn't think it would go and and you know i just want to highlight the point there is that you've gone through degree traditional sort of course of going through uh, school education university degree and then going again to doing a master's was a master's full-time was it yeah, full time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, I, I may have done mine part time, but I was, as like you, I've gone through H and C, H and D degree, and and then professionally qualified. You know, and for me, I just want to. That is something I never thought I'd be able to attain. In fact, many people told me I would never be able to attain that. Never be an engineer. I was always told that would never happen. Yeah. Settle for being a car mechanic, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I've got bigger aspirations than, than that. So, so yeah. when did you get diagnosed with dyslexia then? So I was diagnosed at six. six wow. Okay. Yeah, that's quite a young, quite a young age, really. I was quite fortunate. Really 
to yeah. be fair. What about yourself? I was diagnosed at university. Wow. So I was diagnosed after my first year. I It was in my second year. I was really struggling. Mm-hmm. You know, and if, I think people who listen to this with dyslexia will identify with this. The coursework, I was smashing out of the park. It was fine. Mm-hmm. It was the exams that I was really suffering, bringing the grade right down. Really? And I think someone said, um, I think you should go and see the educational psychologist and get a dyslexia test. And I thought, you know, there's, it's a brilliant facility to have. I'll, I'll go and have a look. I'll go and do it. Uh, and I did the test. And they said, and then I came back for the results and then went, but we've got some good news and bad news. <laughs> and I was like, this sounds, sounds promising. Sounds promising. It's amazing. What's this going to be? The good news is that you've got a, an IQ of 147. And I was like, amazing. <laughs> What's the bad news? I went, you can't use all of that because you're dyslexic. <laughs> so, so I was like, well, how do you mean? And they went, uh, and do you remember your dyslexia test? I remember bits of the first one. I've had two, actually. I had one at six, okay. and then I had another one just before I went to uni to basically confirm <laughs> I still had it, and and I would get all the support I needed at university. But yeah, very much like Brilliant. yourself, is that people with dyslexia tend to have quite a high IQ or above average IQ, but then there are certain parts which they just find tricky, trickier than sort of um, your average person, like your spelling yeah, and your so- reading. Yeah, so they did the test and it was like the verbal and non-verbal and stuff. And they said, basically said, your base IQ is you know, about 147, but there are certain elements of the test that we've done that show that actually they're not equal to 147. And that's how they, the, the difference that they said was what constituted a, a, a diagnosis of dyslexia. I was like, okay, fine. I'm not, I don't know what dyslexia is, but okay, no worries. Just tell me what I need to do, how can I help it, et cetera, et cetera. And the first thing they said was, well, if you don't know what dyslexia is, um, for you, dyslexia is, imagine a computer, you've got the best top of the range, motherboard, et cetera, et cetera. The box is amazing. But your camera, your screen, your mouse, your keyboard, your printer are all like 10 years old. So it will take a long time getting to the computer or press it really quickly. And then it'll take a long time coming out. That is you. And I was like, how do you mean? And I went, well, when I ask you to write something quickly, physically, you dot the I's and cross the T's like on the second letter or over the first, the, you know, the second letter, not over the actual letter. So physically, that's a physical manifestation of your dyslexia. You're already thinking about the next thing before you're even completing the thing that I hand. And I was like, oh, wow. That was a bet. For me, that, that was completely, you know, that was crazy what, what they were saying, telling to me. And they went, basically, yeah, for you, you've got a really shockingly bad short-term memory. Um, and that's a, you know, that's one of the biggest things around dyslexia. Yeah, that's a classic trait. It's the, probably the trait that my wife hates the most. So she'll tell me yeah. to go and grab something. Oh, two things from upstairs and I'll go and get one of them 
where's the other thing? Oh, it's better to go upstairs and forget what you're upstairs for. <laughs> I'm upstairs. Yeah. yeah. Or or send me to the shop to get something and then I have to call her. What did you want again? I completely forgot. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Cool. And one of the things I bet that you manage to get around that is you make lists. Yeah. I, I make uh, lists. Send it to me a text message. What do you want? Send you me a text message now. Otherwise, I'm going to forget. It's going to happen. Yeah. I'm going to forget. So I make lists that like that is, and we talk about. I mean, I probably talk about it now, but there, you know, we've identified dyslexia. We've identified, you know, um, what your type of dyslexia is, if you want to call it that. And then obviously they were like, right, okay, now we need to teach you or show you methods to cope mm. with your what they call disability and what I don't like being called disability. No. I call it difference. Yeah. Yeah, it's a difference, and yeah. dare I say, it, a gift. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. To use your computer analogy, I like to sort of say people without dyslexia are working on um, Microsoft Windows, some even Windows XP. Um, but uh, dyslexia is is your Macintosh. You know, it's they both do roughly the same thing, and they just do it in different styles and different ways. Um, and exactly. I think dyslexic people with dyslexia have all that great potential. It's just done in a slightly different different way to, to people that yeah. haven't got dyslexia. So. Just different way of thinking. Different way of, Absolutely. It, exactly what you just said there. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think um, that, that's an amazing sort of story. Uh, and I just want to sort of add to it really, because I mentioned there that um, I was diagnosed at six. So I think this is where I was sort of really fortunate in that. And, and, and now being a father of a five-year-old, I can sort of see what my parents were going through at the time. So I'd gone and started school at age four and um, I wasn't ever meeting any of the milestones that traditional education or the curriculum was expecting me to hit. And in hindsight, that's not a surprise because the way the education system is set up isn't to tailor for people with dyslexia, you know? Um, so I wasn't able to write my name. I wasn't able to do ABC. I wasn't able to sequence things and organize things and stuff like that. And um, my mum tells me that, you know, she went into, a, into the school to have a meeting with the teacher um, because I was just so far behind. Uh, and you know, this is early 90s. So dyslexia wasn't talked about a lot, really. And um, the, the school didn't help. The school just said to my mum, you're not going to like this but he's just lazy, just lazy, doesn't want to do the work. And my mum was completely not accepting that. So she wouldn't really know where to turn, but she was told to go and speak to a child psychologist who then decided maybe I should go and get tested for dyslexia. And then like you, she's like, well, I haven't got a clue what dyslexia is. And she read up on it. And as she was reading up on the sort of traits of someone with dyslexia, she was like reading about me. She was reading about her son, like, Jesus, that's Michael. Like I could be reading... <laughs> a book about what Michael is and so I went and got tested and no by no surprise I was diagnosed with dyslexia so she took all that diagnosis back to the school and said look he he's not lazy he's just he's got dyslexia which means he needs a bit more support in other areas uh, and the school just did not accept that they didn't want to give me more support and um, so my mum I think over a couple of years then decided to pull me out and my sister out of that school and take me to a different school where they had a learning support department that would cater 
for the school. So I would, that first school was a big school. There's quite a lot of children and it comes from all different areas. So I was just a sort of, you know, a small fish in a massive pond. Went to this other school, which had this sort of support, but it was in the middle of the countryside and it was a tiny school. And I was about the only person going to this learning support. So already I'm sort of getting singled out and sort of thinking, oh, why am I getting singled out? And the, and the differences started to get a bit more highlighted as okay, okay, this isn't, this isn't right. But I got a lot of support there. That, I mean, I wasn't able to write name and days of the week and numbers. And this is like 10 years old, you know, um, until I started that. And they really helped me through that. Um, and then that really geared me up for going to secondary school. And then when I went to secondary school, this is, I was living at Cumbria at this time. So I wasn't even from Nottinghamshire originally. So then at, wow. when I moved, when I went to secondary school, I had to not only go into the big school, but I had to go to the big school in a different county, different part of the country that spoke with a different accent <laughs> and, um, you know, meet a whole lot of new people. Um, at the same time, I had to go and they didn't call it learning support. They called it special needs. Um, and you know, you're, you're approaching teenage years. You're not going to go to something that's called special needs. Um, so I didn't get the support I needed at school. I mean, I got extra time on my exams, uh, and I did okay in my exams. I'm not an A-star student. Um, lots of people with dyslexia are, but I'm just, I wasn't. I think I just, um, wasn't, I don't want to blame people I wasn't getting the support, but I wasn't, but I also wasn't applying myself. I just thought no one else cared, then why should I? Um, and then I went to A-levels because I figured that's going to be the next thing. What do I do? And um, I didn't really have a clue, to be honest, but the subject, and I wasn't good in any particular subjects, but I just said to my tutor at the time, I, I, there's two subjects which I like, which was technology and physics. So you mentioned physics. And I think the reason why I liked those, as you say, the teachers had a background from industry and I liked the technology, side of things because like you all my life playing with Lego, Lego playing with Meccano things like this sketching and drawing imagining things you know imagining how to build robots and trying to put like, bits of wood together to build up like a whatever and um, I was able to do that then at school I thought that's brilliant <laughs> I can I can almost like slack off school a little bit and just focus on doing the things I enjoy doing um, the, the teachers at the time didn't want me to go and do those subjects because I wasn't great at those subjects. And certainly physics, they wanted the A-star students to go into that. Um, but I did them anyway. And I didn't come up with the best grades, but I enjoyed doing it. Um, and, you know, I was sort of fed up with education at this point, which is why I didn't really want to go to uni full time. Um, and to be honest, I didn't get a lot of support. So I was looking at going to uni but going to do uni as like a car mechanic not the I was looking at courses at university at Loughborough for automotive engineering and all these like you know aerospace engineering and, and, and I don't think I even looked I'd even heard it never heard of civil engineering at this point um but we were you know I was looking at you know basically I can't do aeronautical or automotive I have to go and do mechanical and and basically put put cars back together uh so I wasn't really uh, excited by that proposition and which is when um, again my mum found ad in the paper for Burt's Green and this is how old this is you know, an ad in the paper you don't get that much normally LinkedIn but I had an ad in the paper um, to be a, a trainee's brass person that would then put you through your training I thought well, that sounds good so I went and did that um, and when I went for the interview 
I was sort of thinking, oh, I won't be an architect because this is that's because you've got two avenues at Burt's Green, architecture yeah. engineering. And I think, okay, I quite like architecture because I quite like art. So I did art at A-level and at GCSEs and stuff. So art and physics, who the fuck does that? Anyway, so I did, I was quite into art. So I thought I'd do architecture. And, and you'll remember the director, Jonathan Green, I'm sure. He was sort of my mentor throughout my whole career. And I remember meeting the first time in the interview and I sort of said to him, I wanted to do architecture. And he was just looking down at my CV, looked up at me and said, no, you'll do engineering. And they went back to the interview. And I didn't argue with him, I was 17. This is, you know, the head of the company at the time. I'm not gonna argue with you. If you tell me I'm doing engineering, that's what I'm doing. Uh, and I don't know if he saw something or if he, you know, had some idea of what he wanted, but I've, I've been in that ever since I love it. And I'm not, I don't want to sound big headed about it, but because I love it, because I have a passion for engineering, I've gotten rather good at it, you know. And very much like you, I'm not into the detail and the technical stuff. I do like that and I have been forced to get into that at stages, but I'm very much the front end concept high level thinking, imagining what could this look like type design, skipping out the detail. And then when it gets to site, I start getting more interested again, you know, about the contract administration, the program, the dealing with problems as you find them in the ground. You know, you can design anything to detail, but you can never account for the things you don't know about. And that's the problems when you get into engineering, you've got to think on your feet. You've got to use your imagination. You've got to come up with different solutions on the spot. You can't you know, you're not sat around a whole load of standards. The standards mean nothing when you've got a hole in the ground. You've got to fill it up with concrete or something. So I, I, he must have seen something in me or, or whatever. I don't know. But that turned out to be the best route for me. And as I say, since then, you know, it's played to all my strengths. I've um, gone through HNC, HND, done my degree, professional qualification. Um, and each time I'm sort of moving like yourself, really, away from the detail design aspect to it and more towards the project management side of it and the people's side of it. And, and now I'm sort of starting to find new passions because I love contract administration. I love, um, which is really bizarre, but I, I, I can sort of see the broader picture of a contract and see how things interconnect. And um, as long as we don't get lawyers involved, it's okay. Um, but, um, but yeah, sort of very much like yourself, really. Uh, now, back in the school days, it, we had sort of slightly different paths, but now we're sort of getting to more sort of similar paths, which I don't think is um, accidental. I think that sort of plays to the traits or the strengths of people with dyslexia more than, uh, than people without dyslexia. Uh, yeah, I think so. No doubt you would have succeeded being an architect, to be honest with you. No doubt. You know, but... It's true. We always end up in the paths that we take are always convoluted. You know, there can be my path. You know, the fact that I'm a, I'm a senior sponsor. If you told me it when I was just soliciting engineering at Loughborough, you know, one day, you, you know, when you're thirty something, you will be at Network Rail as a senior sponsor. I'd be like, I don't even know what Network Rail is or what senior sponsor is. Mm. So it is, you are right. And you always fall into your, your strengths. It's the strengths that I want to concentrate on. Mm. It's the strengths that people, that you always obviously, people recognize the strengths and you always play to your strengths. Mm. Absolutely. And what I say to, because um, I'm a coach and a mentor, at, you know, in the organization, what I say to, to, to a lot of people, my belief is that, your strengths will always remain your strengths and we need to build on your strengths so they can 
further enhance them. With the, with the weaknesses part, we'll build them up to a point where they're not recognisable as weaknesses, but they'll never be strengths. Your strengths are the ones that will get you through, will make you succeed, et cetera, et cetera. And that's one of the biggest things around dys dyslexia, I feel, is we'll get to a stage where, you know, you look at the weaknesses um, that dyslexia may, 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 the symptoms of dyslexia may, may show, that we just spoke about lists and stuff, short-term memory, but the strengths part massively outweigh all of that, hugely outweigh all of that. You know, uh, what, what did you say? Big picture, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that we can see the bigger picture. Outside, a discussion. outside the box thinking, you know. All that outside of. the box, you know, so many times, my team have told me, you've leapt, you've, you've, you're like four steps ahead or sideways or wherever. Like, why are you talking about this when we're talking about this? I'm like, oh, yeah, sorry. Let me just backtrack. And let me tell you how I've got there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've said a comment completely at random. I do that all the time. It's one of my... <laughs> the, the team understand that now. And I actually had the same conversation with someone in the department uh, earlier this week that we'll talk about someone else and I was like yeah that person's got dyslexia and they're like how do you mean and I was like they're a great lateral thinker and they're always two or three steps ahead of I recognize that trait in that person with me you know because you think they're often wild tangent but no it's actually amazing because what they've done is they've, they've thought out of the out of the box and they're actually saying this is a potential issue potential problem we should also think about this and then obviously some people are like, you know, whatever. But we, you know, more often than not, that occurs. So we should, you know, I think it's a great, great, great asset. Yeah, I, th I think I think you're right. And I just want to um, emphasize that a little bit as well, because in the construction sector, um, historically, we've always faced lots of different challenges, whether it be a technical challenge or whether it be a process challenge or whatever. And to be, I don't like to use the word innovative, but to solve problems, uh, it requires thinking in a different way that we always, we haven't always thought. So, you know, if we look at the kind of challenges that we're facing today, things like uh, net zero carbon, um, scarcity of water resources, um, all these sort of big subjects um, within society that civil engineers but the construction industry as well have a massive role to play. People with those strengths of, of um, dyslexia and, and being able to um, think in different ways, to look at problems from different angles, from different um, ways, um, will help to solve these great big problems that we are facing as a society. And, and, and certainly, um, this is no disrespect from company I work for or companies I've worked for um, but organizations aren't set up or very few organizations aren't set up to to um, bring out those great qualities in individuals that's something that's been my experience and um, we can sort of almost say it, you know if you're going to be a civil engineer you're going to be a structural engineer just to pick on those two items you've got to focus in on that's how you're going to do it you know that's what you do it but Quite a lot of times when I've looked at an engineering problem, sometimes the answer hasn't been to build more assets or, you know, to, to build a new bridge or to put some more pavement in. Sometimes it's actually just been to change a process or to change how maybe the client uses that 
piece of infrastructure. Um, and, it, and it's that outside the box and thinking that I'm, I'm sort of talking about, um, which, oh no, we don't do that. We're civil engineers, we don't talk about that sort of stuff. It doesn't matter if I'm a civil engineer or an engineer or an architect, whatever. that's a solution that doesn't mean we have to build an asset. You know, and one of the best things to help net carbon zero is to not build assets, which goes against <laughs> my career. Because if I if I don't, if people stop building assets, I won't be needed as a civil engineer anymore. But well, there are other ways um, to 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 grow businesses, to grow the railway system, for example, that doesn't involve having to build more railway. You know, what do you reckon? And you're dead right. My so it's funny you say that. My current role is all about benefits so what is the benefit what do we want to achieve and how do we get there there are many many ways to get to that benefit you know and obviously my my one of my big responsibilities in, in my job is to, is to be accountable for the for the projects that i that are in my portfolio and don't get me wrong i'd love to to be responsible to be accountable for a five billion pound project amazing but is it the right thing to do more often than not, no. There's always a solution that's going to be cheaper, harder to get to, so it's not just an infrastructure solution. It might be a, a rolling stock solution or a timetabling solution, you know, um, or a blend of all of them. And, you know, it's about trying to understand what we want at the end and how we're going to get there, but not losing sight of that. You know, you know, we we use the term value engineering, don't we, in the construction industry? What does value engineering engineering mean? It means not delivering something. It means cutting scope. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah, or does it actually mean finding a, a different way of doing something that is cheaper, or it doesn't actually add any value doing this? So why are we doing it? Mm. Is it because of what we call preferential engineering within? within within construction or is it just because you know it's the right thing to do at this time now it's we mustn't lose sight of the of the bigger picture and i think i think what you said there is absolutely is absolutely right so it's about i think being dyslexic has really helped me or sorry being dyslexic having the strength of dyslexia has really helped me in my current job role absolutely can you expand on that a little bit more how so Specifically, give me like a, if you've got an example, maybe. A lot, of, what, a lot of project sponsorship is stakeholder management. A lot. And with stakeholder management, you've got negotiation. You've got um, just network in general, you know, just. What are dyslexic people usually being good at? we're people people why are we people people i've got a i have a, a theory about this and i think it's what you said before about passion so i think when you're passionate about something you really want to understand it you know you really want to understand the, the bits nuts and bolts etc etc and i think if you think about it Because we're because we're, we're people, people. Because we, we like understanding um, people, if you want to call it that. 
I think if you think about it on a flip on its head, I think that's called empathy. Because you want to empathize with the other person. You want to understand what drives them, what what they really want from, from you, from, from work, from life, et cetera, et cetera. You really want to identify and understand that person. And I think when you put that into play as a as, as on my current job role, you're really connecting with people in a one-to-one. Not this, I know I say this, but yeah, not this fake connection, not this small talk, not this, you know, how are you doing, et cetera, et cetera. You're really trying to identify what they want, what drives them, what, you know, the authenticity in that person. And I think, I don't know if this is the case, I think then they also see the authenticity in you. Because it's not fake. It's not fake. I really want to know who you are. I really want to get on with you. And I think dyslexic people, they really see um, people, see what they're about. They see, I think, I know it's a, 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 right, a horrible term, but I think they see the essence of, of that person. Mm-hmm. And so therefore... I think it's, it's really weird, but I think through my time, you know, I've, ne- I've this, this natural way of communication of, of, of connecting with people just lends itself to build a big network. And in my current job role as a sponsor, project sponsorship is all about networking. You know, a problems come up, shit, who do I call? And because you have an extensive network, you are able to call upon that because you're making, I call them friends, and I, and I count them as friends, because you have so many friends within within, within the organisation, you can call on them, and they're willing to help you because you're willing to help them. And yeah. No doubt at some point you've helped them. Uh, and so when you call upon them to help you, they're more than, they want to help you. But on that part about connecting with people, I'm, I'm not sure if you've read the book Getting to Yes. Have you heard about that book before? I've not heard that. It's a negotiation good, book. Yeah, it's really, really good. One of the top 10 books that I recommend that people probably read getting to yes about negotiation and one of the the biggest things about that is to negotiate successfully it's about the problem not the person and a lot of people they really 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 get hung upon the adversarial nature of negotiation with the person and I think when you're really trying to connect with someone that adversarial nature really goes away mm-hmm. and then you're focusing on the problem mm-hmm. and i think that's what's helped with the negotiation part of yeah of my work yeah um the big part of also is about dyslexia and this is probably a connection with, with with the leadership part of, of what we're discussing is you know what you're not good at i know what i'm not good at you know, I'm not good at detail. I'm not good at reading and writing endless reports. That I'm just not good at it. I'm just, I, I can do it. Don't get me wrong. It will take me a little bit longer than some people and I need to be locked away in a room with no distractions, etc., etc. But I know what I'm not good at. So as a dyslexic leader, dare I say it, you have to delegate. And with delegation, you have to trust people. And that is probably something that I would say that I'm relatively good at, is trusting people. You know, I trust them absolutely that they're doing the right thing, that they're making the right decisions. Once I've delegated that that responsibility, that task, whatever it is, I'll leave you to it. Call me if you need help. I'm happy to lend you, give you my thoughts, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the big picture. Here's what 
we should be doing. I'd like you to take this bit and, and get on with it. And I'll do this bit and I'll get on with it. And that's yeah. the delegation part is a, is a huge, huge part of, of what I do. If uh, I'm not, you know, I do not like to micromanage. I do not, we don't have to have the time for it. No. But actually, dare I say, it, I, I don't even, it's not even about that. It's about the entrustment and the empowerment of people because, because I'm crap at it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a huge amount of great things you said there. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Empathy is a, is a, is a dyslexic strength, for sure. And it's something that I, I can see in myself as well. So it might not be a surprise to anybody that I've got a really big passion about leadership. And as you started reeling off all those things about empathy and connecting with people and, and stuff like that, you're describing someone who's got a strong strength in, in, in dyslexia, dyslexia, but also a great leader as well. And so I think, and I, I believe this, whether I'm right or wrong, but people with dyslexia, and I see it more often than not, tend to be also good leaders. They can empathise with people, they can connect with people. Um, and, um, you know, it's not about having the answers. A lot of the times I don't have any of the answers. Like yourself, you know, you, you, you say you could do a report, you could write the report, but you're not the best at it. Um, and being able to connect with people, being able to empathise and, and, and on, a, on a deeper level helps in order to build that network of people up and, and um, get, the, get the job done, really. And it, it, as you're describing that, it reminds me of a really famous person with dyslexia, which is Sir Richard Branston. You know, he always talks about um, surrounding himself with just brilliant people. And he's the visionary. That is great about dyslexia. He can see the big picture. He can see where we want to go. And he believes in it. And he entrusts people and empowers people to be able to, to do that. Um, and, and then the other people that are with him can focus in on the tasks and to get the, the mini bits and pieces done. But he doesn't come and tell them how to do their job. And these are all just great leadership bits and pieces. This is just the mechanics of leadership. Um, and so, you know, as you say, you're connecting dyslexia with leadership we are going to need more and more great leaders and, and the construction industry more, needs more and more great leaders um, and the more we wake up to the fact that people with dyslexia have such great strengths in these areas um, rather than being a hindrance you know because I'm a civil engineer I've got to write reports I've got to get spelling correct on drawings and things like that it's, it's about the strengths that we can bring to the table. And I'll tell you one thing, actually, um, in 2020, I worked on a really great project all the way through the pandemic. We um, all worked from home, didn't meet a single person in the team. The team was massive. We worked in Spain, London, Dublin, all over the world. We, we had employees. Um, and it was, you know, we, quite, the team was made up of the client um, and suppliers and to consultants from all different walks of life, architects, structural engineers, civil engineers, and the team that I worked in specifically on a day-to-day -day basis, the civil engineering team for airports, every single member of our team was dyslexic, just by chance, not by purpose, but every single one of us was diagnosed with dyslexia at some point. And it, to me, it's no surprise that I feel that's some of the best work we've ever done. And, uh, and certainly we all felt inspired about that work. And, um, you know, we were on a daily basis playing to our strengths 
you know, we weren't looking at the detail, but we, we knew where we were trying to get to and we were imagining it, we were forming the picture in our head, using our creativity, because it's concept, we're not getting into the detail of things, we were just sketching things out, drawing things out, space planning. We were using our creativity. Um, the bits that we fell down on, which was the report writing stuff like that, we just helped one another out, we just had each other's backs. Yeah. Um, and so we gave ourselves a bit more time. Um, and, you know, I think that, I think that was, you know, one of my favorite projects that I worked on. It will probably go down for a long time. It's been my favorite one. And, and, and just by sheer coincidence, it was just every single one of us was just dyslexic. You know? So we were, all of us were absolutely playing to our strengths. So it's, the, that was just the power. And, and maybe in the future, that's where if, if you're, if you're a leader, if you're a, a manager of a consultancy, and they're going to be people doing master plans and people doing concept designs and construction elements. Target people with dyslexia in those two areas and your industry is going to thrive. And then the people that really love the detail about sitting on my master series and micro drainage and getting the last millimeter out of a pipe or, you know, making sure the connection details are correct, get them stuck in the middle where they want to focus all that attention. And you've got then a great broad spectrum of people with great talents and playing to the ups, utmost strength and, and, and the organisation will thrive. And this is why, like, and what you said there is, you know, absolutely amazing because you said it was a team of dyslexic people and actually our weaknesses were very similar, you know. So, Mike, I'm a diversity and inclusion champion at work and I believe greatly in diversity in teams because you want that diversity in I call it thinking but some people call it neuro some people call it um, cognitive some people call it culture whatever you want that diversity across in your team because it's that diversity that makes the team succeed you know you want some dyslexic people in there you want some non-dyslexic people in there you know, um, I'm sure you know about the Myers-Briggs personality mm. test. You want different personalities also in there because you want people to, well, we learn of each other. And that's one of the greatest things, I think, that once people have identified, so in that organisational perspective that you said, if you can recognise those traits in people, those strengths and weaknesses, you can play them off against each other. Strengths and weaknesses combined with other people so that unit, that team is hugely strong. You know, I have, I've heard of companies that do these tests before you start at the company. So they place you into teams that are lacking mm -hmm. um, your traits, strengths and weaknesses because they are super high performing teams. And you are right. I think sooner or later, I think we need to embrace embrace that because, because otherwise we're putting, that's the lovely saying, square pegs into round holes. Mm -hmm. we, we, we need to get away from that situation where you know engineers are engineers and architects are architects or whatever it is no it's people are people so we need to understand what they're good at what they're, what they're passionate we, they, we may not even, you may not even know you're dyslexic you might not even know your passion you might not even found it yet but as dyslexic people once you've found your passion once you spark that curiosity in you you are going to be you know the best at what you can do um because you explore, you explore every avenue. You can think the, the, the bigger picture. One thing I've, I've, I've noticed, and I'm not sure if you're the same as a dyslexic person, 
because I talk to these people, I talk to people all the time. I had some crazy dreams. I had some crazy ass dreams. You know, I'm a dreamer. You know, my girlfriend calls me a dreamer. Because we're always thinking about, we're always thinking different. We're always imagining something else. We're always trying to think, you know, maybe yeah. I just bring myself back to a conversation sometimes or back to the problem at hand because I'm already thinking two or three steps ahead. But really, you know, yeah. I think that's a great strength. Also yeah. a weakness, but great strength. Yeah, I, 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 I 100% see where you're at with that. And I'm exactly the same. Not in the sense of asleep dreaming, but in that I am perfectly happy. In fact, if I'm reading a book, and I love reading books, you know, I'm dyslexic, and most people with dyslexia do actually love reading. You know, that's a, you can't just tell someone dyslexic read more books because that'll help. No. But I love reading books, and, and I love that books. That's I, I mean, I've got a whole bookshelf behind me of stuff I love to read. And but what will happen is I'll start reading and then it'll spark something in my mind and I'll start thinking about that and going off a bit of tangent. Oh, really? I'm reading a book here. <laughs> it takes a lot longer. To, I mean, my wife can read a book in about a couple of days. It takes me months to read a book. I enjoy doing it. Um, but my mind starts running away with it. Like, that's a great, interesting leadership concept. I'm going to juice this up phone and start imagining this stuff. And then before you know it, it's like when you start watching YouTube and you just keep going and going and watching the next video and the next video. And then you, before you know it, you're nowhere near where you started. Um, but yeah, that's that's classic dyslexic trait. And it's also a really good strength. It's so, it's so funny you say that. You know, I, 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 I'll, I'll go and research something on Wikipedia or YouTube. And then two hours later, I'm, I'm somewhere like, I'm somehow in Bali <laughs> or something, looking at, you know, finding out what the sand in Bali is for some reason, <laughs> because it's led you down a path. Which is, you know, which which I'll probably ask you now then, actually. What, how do you cope with your dyslexia then? You know, what, what sort of mechanisms have you put in place in your life then to, to help you with your weaknesses, we'll call it? Hmm, it's a good question. Um, I think throughout my school education, I had little things that would help. Um, little rhymes to help remember spelling things. And again, they were just coping mechanisms, um, lists, as you say, that sort of stuff. But more on my day-to-day -day thing, I'm maybe not aware of it, to be honest. I, and nothing's coming to mind that of a coping mechanism, and I'm probably not aware of it because I've got just so used to working in yeah. that way that I'll tell you something that I do do, okay? Because I am, if I can't, I'm, I'm the worst at handwriting. You can't read it. And uh, my, my spelling is atrocious, right? But I touch type. And when I touch type on a keyboard, the spelling's perfect. It's not because I now know how to spell the word, I've got spell check. It's because I've memorized the patterns on the keyboard with the sound. So if I wanna spell yeah. something really complicated, it's not the how you spell it, the letters in an order. It's the sound versus the pattern on the keyboard. So I'll be talking to someone on Teams like I am now, but typing away what they're telling me. And then making, making I'm just at the moment going through a team transition. So I'm going from one team to another team. And so I'm having project handover after project handover as I've got hundreds of lists. And as they're reeling it off, my brain is trying to work out what I want to say with the sounds and my, my hands are just doing patterns on the keyboard. That's probably the only thing that I'm really conscious of. Um, because say my spelling on a keyboard is much faster, much more accurate than it is handwriting. It looks literally like my five-year-old wrote it. So that's the, 
that's the kind of difference. If you saw my handwriting of something and then something I'd written typed up, it would be completely different, you know. And the other thing I think as well, uh, just one of the strengths that we talk about, dyslexics tend to be really good at storytelling, okay? And I do work with a lot of people that are very technical. So they know the intricacies of concrete and the, everything that goes into it. But when they've got to write a report to tell someone who doesn't know anything about concrete about that specific subject, it's really good technical, uh, technically, and, and it's got everything in it that it's meant to have in there. And you could write a PhD dissertation, but for someone trying to read it that doesn't know anything, it's completely lost. So I try and teach people in storytelling how we've got to, we've got to paint the picture, we've got to tell the story. Every single drawing, every single report has got to tell tell a story on how we get from the start to the end. And, and whilst I'm maybe not, I don't know every single intricacies of concrete or asphalt, particularly asphalt, um, for my field of engineering, other people do. And I then construct that into a story that people who aren't technical can understand it and can read it, read it uh, in a way that they get the information that they need and in a visually pleasing way. So that's the bits I'm good at, but other people feed in all the great technical bits, you know. Exactly. It's exactly that. Because we're already we've we know what we want to say. We've planned out, outlined exactly what it looks like, what we're gonna do, and then we'll go and populate it. Because we know the story needs to be like this. Mm -hmm. you know, I say a lot of the mechanisms that dyslexic people put into place are actually mechanisms that everyone should put into place yeah you know, with revision you probably started or you do stuff like mind maps or whatever that we're, we're calling it these days brainstorms or i don't know that's right, the right thing to say now but anyway because you know you start here and then you you go all right okay, that's that's a that's an area that we should talk about and they lead on there and then that's another area and then rather than just words one thing you said about word you know the fact that you type and stuff one thing that might that a lot of software well definitely microsoft have done start doing now is that they can you can read and write the software could read and write as well to be honest with you but you can um what's, what's what the term is but you can speak and it will write down exactly what D you're saying dictate yeah dictate that's the word. i just found that on on word and i was telling my six colleagues about it and they're like this is brilliant it's amazing it's amazing it's amazing um but you also also at the same time you can get people to, you can get uh, pdfs to read to you i mean it's in robotic voice it's not the best but you can read to you so you rather than you have to sit there and reading text yeah it'll read it with you and that's you know the more different ways that we absorb information the more it's gonna we're engaged with it that's a big thing um, I, I, one of the things that that, that i got um taught was um if you if the if you when you're reading things get jumbled up is to use a filter like a, a yellow card or whatever color it is best place for you so yellow i, I don't use it anymore because actually a lot of the paper that i use is now tinted yellow <laughs> you know yellow card helps yeah, you have yeah. Uh, and lists are you just lists as soon as i i need to because my short-term memory is so bad i will forget what i've just thought about Mm, mm. so i on my phone or pad of papers i've got an ipad i try to use an ipad more now so it's just centralized i'll write down what i thought da, 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 write down 
deleted it from my head. Now I think about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. My phone is exactly the same as that. Hundreds of lists. Things I've just thought about, write it down real quick. It's saved away. Yeah. Same yeah. notepads and uh, OneNote on, on Microsoft. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it's just hundreds of notes. Same, <laughs> same. OneNote, yeah. You know, and, and then if I want to take a I want to remind myself that I've got to come back to this section of a drawing, snip it, copy and paste, write a little bit about it. You know? Because... I, sorry. Go on, finish. I was going to say, uh, and I try to do things while I'm thinking about it. So if someone says, can you just send this email? I don't say, yeah, I'll send that in about 10 minutes. And I was like, when we send an email, what do we to say? I'll just start writing it there with them. Because <laughs> you know? I'm not, no point in hanging off for these things. It's just yeah. do things as, as you're thinking about it. Because we know our organisation is terrible. My organisation is terrible, naturally. Mm. Naturally, it's rubbish. So I've had to really build on my organisational skills so that I don't get tripped up by it. And it's really... But, you know, people should be organised regardless. <laughs> so the mechanisms that I put into place, lists, you know, um, like what you... you know, I think you guys use some in, in for, um, oh, what do they call it? Um, infranet interest, I don't know what it's called now, but anyway, some sort of system in, in yeah. yeah, I don't know what it's called now. But anyway, a, a network else, very similar, but I also have my own, you know, folder structure in OneDrive. So mm -hmm. I know that if I have to find something, I know exactly where to go. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, OneNote's the same, you know, I've got, the way I've organised OneNote is, is that I've, I've tagged stuff, so I know exactly if I just search the tag, I will find it. Mm. Yeah, it's a ball like setting up in the first place, but I know that it's going to save me so much time. Mm. So much time. Mm. Um, yeah, it's stuff like that into, that we need to build, put into place so that mm. our dispenser doesn't catch us out. Mm. Because we do, it's strengths just massively outshine the rest. Mm. And what we need in terms of mentors for, for that, is just to have empathy and non-judgment and just um, support in, in you know, searching for those coping mechanisms, you know, um, because, you know, I've got a couple of mentors that I, I talk to on a regular basis and they'll say something. I mean, they don't know the answer, but they'll say something, have you, know, you tried doing this or what about this? They're just asking questions and thinking, oh, actually, yeah, if I try doing that that way, I might be able to um, to do it a bit quicker and easier or something like that. You know, that's where sort of leaders can get in and and help, even if they don't quite understand. They can coach, ask questions, mentor in terms of giving examples of, of maybe what's worked for them in the past, um, and maybe you know I, I've thought about talking about talking to my organisation about setting up a dyslexic forum within you know so in that you you can then have more of these conversations like we're having now and share coping mechanisms across you know what what have what, what system do you do use to keep lists or you know things like that because uh, i think it would help there's a lot more people within your organization with dyslexia that you'll realize um i just happen to be in a team where <laughs> the people i worked with on a daily basis all have dyslexia you know i don't know how it happened but it works um so that's great well look i we do unfortunately need to bring this podcast a bit of a close um usually i'd ask you know um what you think is the most important aspect about leadership but this is a podcast about dyslexia so i really want to try and put out there something that might help somebody who is in the workplace with dyslexia and struggling a little bit or someone that's about to get into the workplace particularly into construction with dyslexia and 
Um, what advice might you give to someone with dyslexia? I'd probably say, don't be scared to ask for help. Don't be scared to look for help. Don't be scared to ask for help. Because with dyslexia, you know, you won't be able to find what you've discussed about a dyslexia forum within within your organisation. You it'll be very difficult for you to find a solution to your issues, your challenges. There's always someone else who's able to help. You know, be it a leader, be it a fellow dyslexic person, be it the internet. You know, don't be scared to ask for help because you will only be able to thrive. My feelings is you'll only be able to thrive once you've you know really counteracted those negative symptoms we'll call it of dyslexia uh, and in doing so you need to ask for help to do to do that you know dyslexia is not a taboo subject anymore i know mm. i i'm ha i'd happily tell everybody in fact i do that i'm dyslexic sorry i'm dyslexic i've not caught everything you just said there you know could you could you could you start again or and this is you know tiredness for me is a huge huge plays a huge factor in me understanding things huge you know when i've had a decent sleep six hours whatever it'll be you've got three kids or fourth on the way was it you don't even know what sleep is you know no, I, I really don't but tiredness for me my dyslexia really comes apparent when i'm tired um so it's, so it's just about identifying that, you know, identifying where you need help, asking help in those areas and then and then building upon that. But also do not forget, do not forget that dyslexia is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift that many people do not have and not born with. So you just utilise that gift to your best advantage. And that's a big, big thing for me. Big, big thing. You can't fake, like I said about the being the people person, you know when someone's been fake. You just know it. You just know. You know, empathy is not something that you can teach. You know, empathy is, is ingrained in people. And I think dyslexic people, a lot of dyslexic people have that empathy because they want to understand people. They're a good people person. They're good communicators, et cetera, et cetera. So, so yeah, sorry. Back to the original point you just said there. Yes, I don't be scared to ask for help. And asking for help sometimes requires all those things that you said earlier about um, having empathy, building up those connections and that support network around you. Um, you know, and, and I want to end on just something, a story I remember about Sir Richard Branston. Okay, this is, this is the guy who has Virgin Galactica, Virgin Orbit, Virgin Atlantic and all these massive companies. Okay, and there was one story that I remember that he, for a very long time, had not a clue what the difference was between gross and net. He just wanted to know yeah, what yeah. was good. Which one, what's the good figure? What's the figure I need to know? And, and, and his, organ in his, uh, his peers in that organization said, do you not know the difference? This is a person that's run multi-million pound businesses and he didn't understand the difference between gross and net. And he wasn't afraid to say, I don't understand. And then the, the great thing is, so, so when you connect something to something, so, someone the description about the difference between gross and net i hope i get this right is that if you're a fisherman gross is the fish in the sea if you take your net and you catch fish your net is what you've got in your net that is the fish that's in your net 
And then, yeah. oh, that's it. He knows what it is now. But if you try to explain that to someone with dyslexia with facts and figures, it's never going to stick. It's getting it to that visual side of things to stick. Um, but you're right. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to own up to where your weaknesses are and, and build that network of people around you that are going to support you and not bring you down. And I think that's where we're, uh, people with dyslexia are really good at and the most successful people with dyslexia really build on that and really use that to their advantage, like Sir Richard Bronston. So, Lawrence, it's been a really fantastic time to speak with you. I do appreciate your time because I know you're a very busy man. So, and, and we've been planning this podcast for some time now. So it's, it's, it's really great. It's no, it's brilliant. It's really great to get this podcast episode in there. Um, so, so thank you. Thank you again. Good night.